This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. And it says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live under your authority in the way that we would understand your sacrifice for us and how we in turn live out mercy to those around us, that you would teach us to love you in a way that loves those around us, that by glorifying you, we would love and live in the world a way that lifts you up in all things. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series all about Jesus' authority. Uh, if you're new, that means we're taking a hard look at Jesus' words, uh, what he did, the things that he said. Uh, Jesus, what he does in Matthew 5 through 7 is gives these teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest, most dense single sermon Jesus ever gave. It's also the most quoted sermon Jesus ever gave. And then after that, it says that people were astounded at the authority with which he spoke. Then it goes into Matthew 8 and 9. In Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus goes on to show us 14 different ways that he had all the authority. He actually does physical things after that to show the authority that he had to speak the Sermon on the Mount. And so many of the teachings of Jesus are refocusing on what God intended. Some of them are actually brand new teachings, and some are a correcting of an error of people who went down the wrong rabbit hole. Today is actually going to be one of those, where Jesus corrects the error of going down the wrong rabbit hole, so to speak. Uh, our effort in going through these 14 different things about authority is to wake us up and how to trust Jesus. The thing that he said, the things that he did, so our lives fall more in line with who he is and who he calls us to be. Now, the last thing we saw that happen last week was Jesus heals a guy and forgives him of his sins. He forgives him first and then heals him. But forgiving somebody of sins was only something that God could do. And that made a lot of religious people mad, just like it still does today. In our day, we essentially have two extremes when it comes to the idea of forgiveness of sins. One, people say, uh, when churches talk about the grace of God, they call it cheap grace. We make it too easy to get forgiven, and we should make it a lot harder than we do. And so they use this word cheap grace. I would like to say that grace has never been cheap. It cost Jesus his life for us because we are so awful, and he is that good. So Jesus saves us. Jesus redeems us. He then changes us according to his will. The second group of people look at this idea of forgiveness, and they think that sin is an outdated notion, has no place in the modern world or churches, so they chafe against the idea of forgiveness because we don't really need to be forgiven for anything because sin doesn't actually exist. And this is a really big deal because people today who don't know anything about the scripture still like to quote, well, didn't Jesus say don't judge? And I know I just mentioned every pothead friend of yours who lives in their parents' basement and doesn't have a job. I got it. I know. But they, they like that verse right there. But the truth is there is sin in the world. There is. And we know this because when we look at the world, we see that there's something wrong. Whether people want to agree with us on the word for it or not, we call that sin. And so what Jesus does in Matthew 9 is he forgives this guy who is paralyzed of his sin. The religious leaders thought that you were paralyzed because of something you did or something your parents did, and this is a repercussion of that. Jesus forgives this guy in front of everybody and restores him back into his community again. And then this narrative now moves on to talk about a guy named Matthew. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and this is no coincidence that it's going to go from healing this guy, forgiving him of his sins, and then moving directly into the calling of Matthew. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. You're like, oh, well, that's awkward because this book reading is actually called Matthew. Right, same guy, same guy. Sitting in the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, forgiveness of sins, directly into calling this guy named Matthew. It's very important because Matthew is 
here's a guy that everyone would have said could not have been forgiven. He had passed the line. He had gone too far. The way it works is like this. In Israel, you would have 80 to 90% of the populace at this day and time starving, living day to day, and a few people would live in luxury. Now, those people who live in luxury, they got their money by imposing taxes on people. Taxes is the word talos. And see, these rich people didn't go across these arid lands in their nice robes and sandals getting people, people's money for themselves. They would send out people to do that for them. These were called tribute or tax collectors called talones. And so if you're poor, everything was taken from you. How do you feel about these tax collectors? How do you feel about the IRS? Okay. Tax collectors were worse than them. They, they allow the rich to get richer, and you get poorer. And if you're a God-fearing Jew who loves the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, this is not right. People taking advantage of is a violation of the Torah. Matthew would take money from people, give it to the ruling elites, but also to a ruling superpower who came in and was destroying his country. Matthew is somebody who is part of the problem, and everybody knows that. He, for us, today would be like, he's the guy who left the soldiers in Benghazi. He's that guy. He's the guy that took away your good health care and gave you government health care. He's the guy that taxes your money when you make it, when you spend it, when you give it away, and even when you die to give it to somebody else. That's Matthew. And Jesus says to this guy, follow me. Now, follow, follow me is an ancient way a rabbi would call somebody to be his disciple. For Matthew, this is inconceivable. How would this rabbi, why would this rabbi call me? This is amazing. I never thought of this. And everybody else is like, yeah, why would that rabbi call that Matthew guy? Because it's so inconceivable that Matthew could be forgiven and loved and brought into the graces of Jesus. People hate him. He will always be seen as a traitor, and yet Jesus restores him. Now, in the other Gospels, what you see is right after this moment, Matthew throws a party. And he invites all of his scumbag friends over to the party to hang out. And Jesus and his disciples come to the party the scumbag is throwing. Matthew kind of skips over that and just tells you what happens at the party. Matthew 9, starting in verse 10. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So what are they doing? They're hanging out. He's hanging out with the evil tax collectors and sinners at the tax collector's house. And what happens there, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And they probably respond like every five-year-old, I don't know. Right? Verse 12, but when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what Jesus does is something that infuriates the religious leaders who were there. He's reminding them of the scriptures. And that always infuriates self-righteous people when you remind them of the Bible. They, they don't like it. But he also reminds them of the true way to interpret the scriptures as well. Jesus is the author of scripture in the broadest sense possible. He has the authority to interpret the scriptures the way they were meant to be interpreted. You're not Jesus. You don't get to do that. And so what Jesus does is talks about mercy and sacrifice. Now first off, don't think that Jesus is getting rid of the idea of sacrifice when he says this. In reality, Jesus is showing how real mercy it actually is a form of sacrifice, especially on his part, because everyone he showed mercy to got him into more trouble, and eventually he will be sacrificed for our sins. And second, what I'm going to do is deal with the idea of sacrifice first, and then we'll come back and talk about mercy, and we'll bring these together, and you'll understand hopefully what's going on here. Okay? okay. I'm always waiting for someone to go, no. Because we're going to do it anyway. I don't care what you say, but okay. Anyway, so sacrifice. To define sacrifice, you have to understand this word 
holy. This word holy, it's a word people use in churches all the time. The word holy is this word chodesh. Chodesh, it means consecrated, set apart for a different usage. It's different than everything else. It's used when something is made and intended for a different purpose than a normal purpose. In case of the Bible, that'd be for God's purposes. So today, if you go to a funeral, you walk into that space, and that space is supposed to be different, and it feels different, and usually dress different, and talk different when you're inside a funeral home because it just feels different. It's a different space. If you go to a rock concert, it's also a different space, right? You're all a bunch of knuckleheads. Y'all don't act like you do in here at a rock concert. I know because I've seen some of you some of those. So, different space. Exodus 30 says you are to distinguish between the holy, that's the sacred, and the common, the normal, average, everyday stuff. Like even people who don't believe in God have a feeling that church is a different type of space. Even if it meets in an old car dealership that's falling apart, you know, they, they still have a different idea that it feels a little bit differently. Uh, people who, who don't believe in Jesus usually get more offended at my jokes than people who do follow Jesus. They say, you can't say that in church. It's like, I just did. I don't know what to do with it now. It's out there. <laughs> the space just feels different, different, holy. Got that? Right? Okay, the word sacrifice is made from two words. It's made from holy and to make. So the word sacrifice means to make holy, to make something holy, to make something dedicated to God's use. Now, what's very important to understand is when Jesus died, what has it, you have this curtain in the temple, and it separates the most holy place from everything else, and that curtain is torn from the top to the bottom, from God to us, and God goes out. So the holy is now found in the common. The holy is now found in the normal areas of our life. All our lives are meant to be holy. There is no longer this differentiation of space. Everything in your life that you do is meant to be holy. We are told by Jesus' sacrifice, he has made us holy. Romans 12.1 says we are to now live our lives, everything we do as living sacrifices. The most technical word in the Old Testament for a sacrifice is meant to bring something near to God. Uh, in this case, you know, God then transforms that into being holy. Then God would use that thing for his purposes. We are told that through the blood of Jesus, we are brought close to God. God now uses us for his purposes. In the Old Testament, you had this whole sacrificial system that was set up to remind you how damaging sin was and what the price for sin was and how to become clean. How do we become clean? We become clean through sacrifice through sacrifice. We understand today that by Jesus' sacrifice, we have become clean in God's eyes. Blood covered the debt of our sin. But you also have to understand that sacrifice was more than that. It was broader in context, especially of how God explains it. It was also about joyfully giving, in our case, that'd be monetarily, and remembering who God was and is by how we spend our finances. In the Old Testament, they had this thing called the tithe. That means 10%. You might have heard that word. That went to the priesthood because the priesthood were not given an allotment in the land where Israel lived. What they did is they spent their whole lives serving people by serving in the temple for them. So the Israelites would give 10% of their income so the priest could survive. But that wasn't all that the tithe was. You also gave 10% to the priesthood, but you also gave another 10% in order to throw massive parties. Okay, I don't know if I like that. Okay, I say this a lot. Can you imagine if we took 10% of our aggregate income and threw it together just to throw parties? Can you imagine what that would be like? Holy, we would have the best bands that I like. <laughs> 
We, we would have the best beer and wine, or if you don't like that, water, whatever. Yeah, we have the best, we'd have the best meat. We, we, if you're a vegetarian, we'd have whatever you eat. I don't know. You know, tofu, I don't know. But why? It was meant to celebrate that God is good and God is rescuing and God is redeeming. This is the whole point of it. 10% went into the temple treasury to pay for festivals and parties and community gathering events. Worship was always tied to celebration. You can't do that with Cheez-Its and juice boxes. You got to do it big. You got to do it big. 10% goes to the priesthood, 10% goes to parties, and 10% every three years went to the poor. And on top of that, there were also special offerings for the building of the wall, the tabernacle, different building projects. Giving and sacrifice of income totals came out to actually be 27 to 30% of one's income in their worship, taking your common things and making it holy. In the Old Testament, they would give their first fruits to God. So if you were a farmer, you would bring the first produce of your field, and you would bring that and give that. If you were a rancher, you would bring an animal, the first and the best that you had. At least you were supposed to bring that. For us, we don't actually do that anymore. So in our idea, that's kind of money. You bring your first and your best. If you tried to bring us your dog as a sacrifice, we'd say no, take it home. If you tried to bring us your cat, twist armor enough, we just might sacrifice it for you. Okay. <laughs> I need, I need Austin on the drums to go, all right? <laughs> Every service responded like that. I don't know. I don't know why. The problem with the Israelites is a problem with us, is that they got to the point where they started giving or sacrificing from their leftovers, not their first fruits. Like, for us, think about when or even if you give. You know, if you ate out all month, got your 10th pair of shoes, and then you paid your cable bill and got a new car, made that car payment, then you look at your finances and go, oh, I don't have anything left over to give to God. That's kind of what the Israelites started doing. In the book of Malachi, God basically says, just stop bringing anything. Just shut the gates. Just stop it. Because the problem with leftovers is there's usually not much left over when you're done. You get paid on Friday, cash a check, get all that cash, blow it, and by Tuesday you're bumming gas money from your friends. Hey, I'll pay you back on Friday. That's not a budget. You go to the ATM and it says you have money in the bank and you take it out. That's not a budget. Outliving your creditors is not a budget. Okay? It is not, it's not a budget. In Malachi, God says, I don't want your ten-eyed, five-legged goat that has two others and spits out rainbow milk that you grew up next to a nuclear power plant. I, I don't want that. No one else will buy it at the marketplace. So what, you're going to give it to me? No, that's what I was going to do. God says, I don't want that. I want your first and your best. This is, this is when we understand our lives as living sacrifices we, we are saved by God's grace and goodness, and so we give our first and best to him in all that we do. And I have said this before. The biggest problem in our world is not Muslims or terrorism or the economy. It's that we love ourselves more than we love our God, and that is called idolatry, and it is false worship, and yet we do it all the time. We must understand what true sacrifice actually is. Jesus died for our sins. We don't sacrifice to make God love us. We give because our lives are meant to be ones of living sacrifices, understanding what Jesus has done for us. All of our lives, our money, our time, our effort, all that we do, sacrifice. Got it? Got it. Mercy. Mercy. When you ask people what mercy is, they tend to think it's compassion or loving others or helping people in need. Or if you're in your friend's car and the country music station comes on, you don't break their stereo. Something like that, right? Could all be part of it, but when you look at mercy in the New Testament, one of the best places to understand mercy is the story called the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke 10, 25 to 37. Now, like in Matthew 9, it illustrates how the religious leaders viewed the difference between mercy 
and sacrifice. So in the story, you have a guy. He is, he is downtown somewhere, probably middle of the night. He's robbed by some hoodlums, and they beat him up. It's probably downtown Santa Maria at like 2 a.m. or something like that. So these two religious people see him on the side of the road, and they walk around him. They will not go near him. They will not touch him. They will not see if he is okay. One of the reasons they did that was because of their sacrifice. It's because of their sacrifice. They wanted to stay clean. Religiously, you're not allowed to touch a dead body. And if this guy was dead, you became unclean. Or if you tried to help him and he died getting him somewhere, you would become unclean. So they would ignore suffering and hurting people in order to make sure they could go to the temple and worship God with their sacrifices. They didn't realize that in not helping this guy, they're ceasing to worship God altogether. What happened is their sacrifice was skewed all in the wrong direction. Now, eventually what happens is a Samaritan goes by. This would be like if you're a conservative, that's Hillary Clinton. If you're a liberal, that's Donald Trump. And they go by and they see this person and they actually help the person. And everybody says, that person would never help a hurting person. There's no way that would happen. Well, they did. Okay, they did. And they show mercy and take care of him. John Piper points out four things that the Good Samaritan points out in the dimensions of mercy. Number one, he says, mercy sees distress. See, the Samaritan sees this person. Secondly, mercy responds in internally with the heart of compassion or pity towards a person in distress. And it tells you in the parable, it says, with compassion, he went and helped this guy. The third thing, mercy responds externally with a practical effort to relieve the distress. What happens is a Samaritan takes this guy, he binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for this guy to stay in the inn and make sure he actually gets better. Fourth, he says, mercy is given even when the person in distress is by religion and race an enemy. This is the understanding of the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan. A Samaritan to a Jew was a half-breed. They had these warped religious traditions, and yet this warped religious tradition, Samaritan stops and helps the Jew who is hurt. This, is, it just, this doesn't happen, and yet here in this story it does. So mercy entails an eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help in spite of how you feel about a person's views on any given topic whatsoever. That is mercy. And don't get me wrong, when I talk about mercy, mercy doesn't mean that you can't be like a prosecuting attorney. Mercy doesn't mean you can't discipline your kids when they do something wrong. You should discipline your kids because if you don't, they become, what did I say, hellions? Hellions, like that. It, it doesn't mean you can't fire an employee for being a bad employee and a slacker. I would go so far as to say that you could even support certain legislation for harsher punishments for certain things. John Piper says this, though. He says, God's will is that sometimes we recompense people with what they deserve, whether punishment or reward. We call that justice. And God's will is that sometimes we recompense people with better than what they deserve, and we call that mercy. And upholding the claims of justice, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of justice. And in showing mercy, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of mercy. So this means that the lawyer or the judge who wants to follow Jesus will look at every case before them. Sometimes they will hand out harsh punishments, and sometimes they will hand out some grace for the greater good. It means as a parent, you will listen to the things that the Bible says when it tells you to discipline your kids, but also sometimes there will be places where you get to express grace and mercy to teach your kids what mercy is. It means as an employer, you will pay a good wage, but also insist on good workmanship. And a lot of people say, well, how do I know the difference between those two things? How do I know when to do one and not the other? Well, I'll tell you, our goal is to get always as close to Jesus as possible. Our goal is not to be sacrificial law keepers. 
And so what we want to do is grow to be like Jesus as much as possible. Jesus offered mercy and grace to these prostitutes and these tax collectors and these sinners. But Jesus got right in the face of the Pharisees. He, got, he chases these money changers out of the temple with a whip in his hand. So you see a little bit of justice, and you also see the mercy and goodness of God in both. And so there are no hardened rules in scriptures about what situations require a soft touch versus the hard touch. And this is not an accident or deficiency in the scriptures, because the scriptures want to produce a certain type of people. A certain type of people. It does not give you laws and rules for everything in your life that you encounter. It wants us to become people who love and worship Jesus first so we can determine what best ways to offer mercy. And sometimes offering mercy is having hard words for people in the midst of their sin, and sometimes it's offering them grace. So it's both these things. Now, the word mercy, most often translated in the Old Testament, it's this word called hased. Hased. Hased is translated as kindness and solidarity, and it's translated as goodness. It's also translated as grace. When it's used of God, it's used usually of God's covenant faithfulness to his people, even when we are people who run away from him. Has said in its roots, it means devotion, which gets very close to the idea of sacrifice as well. Being devoted to God enough to live in his mercy and his grace. So you got it? Sacrifice, mercy. Lost about half of you. Okay, listen to the podcast. You'll be okay. So when Jesus says, Matthew 9, 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it does not mean that we get to go, sweet, I just got to be nice to people and never give any money to God. That's not what it means, okay? The context, and context is always important in the scriptures, always important in the scriptures, is that when Jesus says this, he is quoting this Old Testament book called Hosea. In Hosea, the nation of Israel had drifted from God again, but they were still keeping all these rituals, these outward signs of religion. Hosea is a book where God looks at his people and says, you're living like a prostitute. I have loved you and sought you and bought you and tried to bring you home, and yet you love everything in the world but me. Israel gives their affections to everything but God. Sometimes they would say the right things. Occasionally they would even do the right thing. And people around them would say, oh, wow, they're such good people. And Israel would say, oh, I love God. I'm a follower of God. But in the very next action, they would give themselves to anything that wasn't God. Sounds a lot like us. So in our vernacular, we, people who claim to be Christians, and yet they worship a sports team. Or they download porn on the internet, or cheat at work, or cheat on their spouse, or cheat on their taxes. I did say, or watch reality TV. <laughs> I think it's when we place politics above the Bible. I think it's when we place personal choice above the right to life. And God says, Hosea 6.4, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Your love is so fleeting, and yet you claim to be so committed. You have no idea how weak your love really is. So what God then says to them, to these weak people who are just like us, who aren't very good at repentance, is this, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In context, God points out to his people that their love is like this dew on the grass. It's there for an hour in the morning, then kind of goes away. And all that's left is the empty form of their offerings that they were giving because they didn't really live in it. They just gave them and went away. The point is that God wants his people alive in their hearts that live a certain way. He wants them to have feelings of affections towards him and yet love and mercy towards each other. He doesn't want a people who do the religious duties and feel like, okay, I'm done, and they get to just walk away from that. He doesn't want a people that does that. He wants people to understand their entire life is meant to be one of worship and mercy, and yes, even sacrifice. So when you go back to Matthew chapter 9, 
remembering everything I just said. I'm sure you got it all in your heads right now. Uh, Matthew 9, Jesus saw people who were lost in their sin, and he equates it to people who were miserable and in need of a physician. I, I don't know if you've ever been sick and gone to a doctor and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with you. Uh, last year, I got this rash on my arms. I was working with epoxy. Apparently, I was, I was allergic to it. We didn't know what it was. And, it just, and we kept putting, trying to stop it, and it, just, it was like a squatter that kept getting evicted. just kept going up my arm. I'm like, ah, oh, oh, I, I eventually, never mind. But it was bad. Uh, and then I told you like a few years ago, I, I got malaria. They didn't know what it was. And they were trying to figure out what, what in the world was going on. It's, Jesus says that sin is like that. And the only way we get better is we own up to the fact that we sin. That we don't have our lives all together. I know we like to pretend like we do on the outside, but we don't. And we own it. And we take that to Jesus as our great healer. And he is the one who will deal with our sin problems. The sick know they need a doctor. And so the sick are those who are constantly telling all the other sick people about the goodness and the grace of Jesus, the mercy of him. He says the healthy don't need a doctor, referring to the religious leaders, not because they were actually healthy, but what they did is they were so self-deluded they thought they didn't need the grace of God in their life like everyone else did. See, the worst people, the tax collectors, these sinners who were eating with Jesus, they saw their sin and their need for hope again. And all the religious people saw when they walked into this meal and saw them hanging out at this party together, all they saw was a ceremonial problem. All they saw was a sacrificial problem. They saw Jesus becoming contaminated by being in the situation because of his mercy. They saw him being contaminated because of his mercy. So what does he say? You're wrong. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is what he tells these people. The religious leaders had their life that was figured out. It's mechanical implementation of all of their own rules. They did not see what was really at stake. They, they were enslaved to their trivial issues of ceremonial cleanliness when eternal sickness was their problem, and the answer to that was sitting right in front of them. And this is why Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It does not mean sacrifice is bad. We should all worship in sacrifice because sacrifice is worship. We should give of our finances and of our lives. But we understand that Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins. We don't have to atone for our own sins. Our entire lives get to be ones of sacrifice. That also means that the Bible just doesn't become a book of trivia answers to go to six degrees on Tuesday night and play trivia you know, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's, it's, the Bible's not about how much you can know. It's not about having a better morality than somebody else. The scriptures teaches the understanding of what God's mercy did to rescue and save us. How to really live God's life through us in the world around us. I think it's really important to understand that God, through the saving death and resurrection of Jesus, is saying to his people that I desire to show you mercy. I do not desire to demand a sacrifice of atonement from you. God does this to rescue us. God does not desire to extract sacrifices for our sins because Jesus did it for us. He does not mean to extract meaningless promises where I'll do better next time and I'm really sorry and oh no. He knows we're sick. And we have far too many excuses in our lives and we're trying to make better excuses rather than simply living in the mercy and grace of his sacrifice and then living that out to the world around us. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That reflects God's heart towards every single one of us. And Jesus' authority here means, is meant to point us back to that understanding. Mercy, not sacrifice. I think there's only three possible ways to live this out in our lives. 
Number one is sacrifice, not mercy. This would be do the rules, figure it out, get it right, work your way into God's favor, which will never happen because we are all knuckleheads. You got to own it. Second thing is mercy and sacrifice, where we uh, try to atone for our own sin, to work our own sin off and get ourselves into God's goods, graces, and, and live in holiness as hard as possible. And then we have to love other people in mercy. But the problem is, when we start to live that way, we're never going to really show true mercy to everybody else because we're worried how much everybody else is going to mess us up. And we can't get close to that guy because they're too jacked up, so I can't really talk to him. And so what we do is we cease living in mercy. Or we can live, as Jesus says, mercy, not sacrifice. And this is what Jesus offers to us by his sacrifice. I think in the end, they're both important, but loving God and others first mercy leads to the proper understanding of living sacrifices in our lives. It's important to understand that Jesus says these words to the religious leaders. He does not say this to the people at the party. To the religious leaders. Too often, when we look at stories like this, we think, oh, I'm the people at the party. I'm the scumbag that we are really more like the religious leaders. You know how I know that? We got a political system right now. And this is how I know this. We tend to think that people who are not like us do not deserve mercy. We think if people would agree with me and those people don't, what that is, that's mercy and sacrifice. It's I will show you mercy when you agree with me. That is not how the scriptures call us to respond to people. We are meant to be a people who understand mercy, not sacrifice. We understand Jesus is the one who is sacrificed, and so we get to live in mercy. Jesus restores relationship with God. He restores relationship with us. Jesus wants to live wholeheartedly for God because God's whole heart towards us is mercy. See, God deals with us now in mercy, not sacrifice. This is the whole reason Jesus came and died and rose. We get to live in a posture of offering that same mercy to others. We, get to, we also get to sacrifice in our worship, not because we're atoning for our sins, but because we want to joyfully learn to live as God lives. Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. So we emulate him to this world around us. Our sacrifice doesn't make God love us more or gain us a better understanding before him. What it does is it lives out what God has already done in us. It is grace. It is mercy. It is grace. It is understanding that in Jesus' authority, he can call us back to be a people who live in real mercy. It is so easy to get caught up in the idea that I have to go and sacrifice. I've got to do these things so God will accept me, so God will love me, so God will like me. God already does like you. God already does love you. God already has redeemed you. He has done this in his son. We do not have to be a people who are always trying to get God to love us because he has already stated he does love us. And when we understand that, we can actually begin to live in mercy. It does not mean that everybody is going to agree with you in every little area. That's okay, because you know what? Jesus died for their sins, just like he died for yours. When someone irritates you, they do not have to clamp on a cross and get crucified for what they did, because Jesus was already crucified for them. It's like he was done for you. I think once we begin to realize that, we can begin to offer mercy to one another. We begin to live in these ways that we understand God's grace first given to us 
by the sacrifice of his son for our sins so that we don't have to hold other people to an impossible standard that we can never live up to. Jesus forgave us. Jesus loves us. Jesus calls us home, and he teaches us to be a people who now live in mercy. Because when we truly live in mercy, we'll be living these lives that are living sacrifices. This is why we talk about communion every week. Communion reminds us of the great sacrifice Jesus did so that God extends us mercy. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And lay down these inappropriate standards we have for everybody around us. And remember that this sacrifice pays for our sins so we can get up and begin to live in great mercy. And again, as I said, it does not mean, mercy does not mean that you cannot call someone on their sin. It does not mean that you, that you cannot say, hey, you're really screwing up there. That's sometimes the greatest mercy you can show somebody. But we have to understand that even in that screw up and even in those things, this is the understanding that Jesus has already sacrificed for us. And we're there to call people back home, back into the family of God and the graces of who he is because our God has rescued us. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you about that. Maybe your life has just been one that's all about sacrifice and you're trying to work your way into God's good graces, and you're trying to get God to love Guys, you don't have to. You don't have to. God already does love you, and he has proven it to us by what he sent Jesus to come and do. Jesus made the choice to die for us, to rescue us, to show us mercy. They would love to pray with you about that, or really anything that you have. There's offering boxes inside of one in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. There's some food in the back. Grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. Uh, talk through some of the sermon notes questions in there. Go a little bit deeper in the understanding of, you know, what, what things do you deem unforgivable? What things do you want people to sacrifice in their own lives for rather than let Jesus' sacrifice cover that thing? Where do you have a hard time showing mercy to one another? Where do you in your life have a hard time receiving the mercy of God and trusting of his atonement for you? Where? Because these are really good questions to understand because I think ultimately how we understand God's mercy is going to determine how we begin to live that out in our lives in front of other people, how we show mercy to one another. And so a proper understanding of this, of Jesus refocusing us back on mercy, not sacrifice, is imperative for how we live as the people of God in the world. We must become a people who live in mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to truly live in the understanding of your mercy. That it doesn't negate the idea of us in our lives sacrificially giving to you but it does negate the idea of us having to atone for our own sin that the whole idea of mercy is you bringing us back home again back into your family you adopt us as your children and our lives get to become ones of living sacrifice we have been brought near because of what you have done. We've been made clean because of what you have done. And it all comes down to your mercy. 
your steadfast love and kindness given to us. And so I ask that you would teach us, even this morning, how to begin to live. First and foremost, understanding your mercy first given to us. But then how to live out that mercy as your living sacrifices in this world. That we would be the ambassadors of your kingdom that you call us to be. That we would reach out and proclaim this great mercy of our great God who has rescued us. And that we would live in the great hope and the conviction that you have already made things new. And you can change our hearts and our lives day by day to better reflect who you are. So teach us to live as if our entire lives are before your throne because they are. Teach us to live in that mercy. We ask this in your son's good name.